Good afternoon, folks, and welcome to another episode of Lessons from the Cockpit. I am your host, Mark Hacera, and for over 60 years, my passion has been aviation. On our show, we interview some of the most intriguing and fascinating aviators, maintainers, and aviation enthusiasts from all over the world. And we investigate the tactics, techniques, and procedures that these aviators learned during those extraordinary and extreme flight conditions, either in the military, commercially, or in general aviation. Special thanks to our sponsor today, Tanker Pilot, Lessons from the Cockpit, a book that can be found in all four formats on Amazon. On today's show, we're going to interview a former Vietnam F-4 pilot who then went into the commercial airlines and is now still teaching at one of the majors and get ready to hear some audio from one of his missions over North Vietnam because it involves a tanker. Imagine that. So, grab an adult beverage of your choice, sit down, strap in, and let's launch the Lessons from the Cockpit show. George, welcome to Lessons from the Cockpit podcast. How are you, my friend? I'm doing great, Sluggo, and thank you so much for having me today. I'm excited about this. I'm excited to have you on because you have so much knowledge and experience from flying F-4s in Vietnam, training, everything. So real quickly, just give a little two-minute bio of yourself and what you've done, not only flying, but as an author and a podcaster too. And you want me to do all this in two minutes? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, maybe three. Okay. I started flying when I was uh, 17 years old, right after I graduated high school. I went to University of Delaware for a year, and then I went to the Air Force Academy. I took some flying lessons at the Air Force Academy uh, you know, through their, in the flying club. They didn't have any flight instruction there at the time. And then I went to Air Force pilot training. After pilot training, I went to Vietnam in the O2, which is a, a military version of a Cessna 337, which is used as a forward air controller. After what they did, they didn't have any fighters pilot training when I was, when my class graduated, but they said, if you volunteer for Vietnam, we will send, we'll give you your choice of assignments afterwards. So I volunteered for Vietnam. At the end of my tour, they said, what we meant was you can have your choice of B-52G or B-52H. Oh, no. Not what you were looking for. Not at all. I wanted a fighter, a friend of mine. I uh, said, look, George, if you he he had a background in SAC and he said, if you are going to be stuck in SAC, the best base of all is Mather because it's a tenant wing and an air training command uh, base. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, you you don't have to put up with all the SAC stuff. And I went and it's a great location because most SAC <laughs> bases are northern tier bases. Yeah. He said, so yeah, that's what you should do. I'll help you write a letter to SAC headquarters and get you an assignment to Mather. And he helped me write a letter, so BS letter of I'm looking forward to being part of SAC, (laughs) capital S, and fighting the threat, capital T, and all this stuff. And by return mail, I got my assignment to Mather. And everybody else, a bunch of our guys went to SAC. They all went to Kinchlow and Minot and K.I. Sawyer, all these other northern tier bases. And I got to Sacramento. As soon as my feet hit the ground at, at the Mather Air Force Base, uh-huh. I was filling out my dream sheet to fly F-4s in Vietnam. 
I volunteered for a second tour and I was at Mather for exactly one year. One year to the day I left Mather and went to F4 training. I got to Ubon, Thailand, just as linebacker was starting. And, oh, and I, oh. was, I was the last pilot to get 100 missions over North Vietnam, the last Air Force pilot to get 100 missions. So I, my timing couldn't have been better. I was so oh, fortunate. Yeah. After that, I went to Kadena flying F-4s. And then I ended up after I went to wing staff as wing operations and training, mm -hmm. went to Patrick Air Force Base to instruct in the O-2. Then I got out and went to United Airlines at one point. Four years later, I was furloughed. I went back on active duty for, for five and a half years, went back to United, was a 737 co-pilot. I instructed on the 737 and then yeah. a 737 captain, 727 captain, finally 777 captain and check pilot. I had the audacity to turn age 60. That was in <laughs> 2005. They kicked me out because I was over the hill. <laughs> Over the hill with all of this experience. Over the hill. And now here's the really funny part. It's not funny at all. A month after I was forcibly retired, they terminated our pension at United. Oh, no. And United was in bankruptcy and they were allowed to do it. The bankruptcy court allowed them to do that. So I knew I have to keep working. I worked at uh, Metro State Embry-Riddle as instructor in their aviation courses and then I got a job at flight safety instructing in citations. Yeah. And I was in the simulator one night and I'd forgotten to turn off my cell phone. My cell phone rang and it was a recruiter from Canada. And she says, do you still want to be a triple seven captain in India? <laughs> I had never applied for this job. You know, I said, I don't know. Send me some information. I'm in the middle of a sim period. Email me. She says, OK, we desperately need 100 captains. A hundred captains. A hundred captains in India. I went back to this condo we were renting in Orlando in Celebration, Florida. And my wife wanted to have a heart-to-heart -heart talk about the dismal state of our finances. And I'm checking my email. And I said, how about if I go to India for $12,000 a month tax-free? And she said, have a nice trip. <laughs> Three days Smart later, woman. <laughs> you bet. Three days later, I was in Amsterdam taking a triple seven check ride. And three weeks later, I was at Indoc at Jet Airways in Mumbai. And we flew all over the world, brand new triple seven, 300 ERs, 100 expat captains. The really cool thing, Mark, was here I was 63 years old, too old to fly in the United States, and I was landing a 777 at Newark. <laughs> You're too old to land at Newark. <laughs> yeah. I see, for an Indian registered aircraft, I'm allowed to fly to age 65. So I did that, and we flew, we flew all over the world, had some great flying. I aged out of that, and then I did what's called IOSA, IATA Operational Safety Audits, where I'd go around for a week all over the world to different airlines and do safety audits. After a couple of years of doing that, I went to Boeing to instruct on the 787 and the mm -hmm. 777. And those jobs eventually went away. I came back to now I am uh, instructing again at Metro State in the aviation department. Yeah. I'm also at United Airlines again as yeah. a 737 ground school instructor. It's kind of like in The Godfather 2, where the guy says, every time I think I get out, they get me back in. <laughs> but see, a, somebody with all of your experience should be teaching. That That's just common sense, right? 
Well, I got to tell you, Mark, it is so rewarding because at United, they're hiring right now. And I don't know if this will keep on because of what's going on overseas. But right now, they're hiring 140 new hires every week. And I get every week. Yes. 140 a week. Isn't that amazing? They were. When I went through Indoc as an instructor three years ago, it was 50 people a week. And then it became 70 people a week. Now it's 140. So it's most tripled. Of them, most of them go to our air, our aircraft at 737. Mm-hmm. And I get to instruct either new captains or new new hire first officers. And that's so rewarding being able to mentor them. So I really enjoy the job. Oh, I'll bet. And I bet you have a ton of lessons learned. <laughs> well, actually, I do. <laughs> well, go ahead. What's your first one? What's okay. the first one that comes to mind? The first lesson is there is no such thing as useless information. Everything you learn that you put in your bag of tricks will someday, someday be useful to you. When I was in pilot training, uh, inside the stall doors in, in, the, in the lavatories, inside every stall door is a magazine rack in the Air Force. And back in 1967, 1968, they were all flying magazines, flying plane and pilot, pro pilot, all these different aviation magazines. And I would read them while I'm doing my business to prove that I could multitask. I came across an article called The Box Canyon Maneuver. And I was reading it. It seemed kind of neat. It was basically if you're in a box canyon and you know the mm-hmm. sides of the canyon are too high for you to climb out, the end of the canyon is coming up. The last ditch maneuver is what they called the box canyon maneuver, which is really a hammerhead turn. You, you pull straight up and you unload the aircraft so it can't stall and you stomp a rudder. And next thing you know, you're headed in the opposite direction. Well, I would go out and I'd practice it on my solo flights. And it was fun to do. It was just kind of fun. Now we're eight months, 10 months later, I'm in Vietnam. One of the jobs I had in Vietnam was to do functional test flights in addition to combat flights. And I was on a mission where um, the weather was really bad. We took, I took off from uh, Da Nang on runway 35 and turned right. And I was immediately in the clouds and I was going to climb up out over the ocean, heading east, out over, I can't remember the name of the, the it's, a, it's a recreation area now. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, I know China what you're Beach, talking about. I can't over, remember the name over of it China Beach, Take off over China Beach, climb mm-hmm. out to the east. And once I get above the clouds, I could do my functional check flight. So uh-huh. I'm, headed, I'm headed east and I'm in instrument conditions. I'm feeling like a big boy here. I'm on instruments. This is my first time really on instruments, mm-hmm. really instrument conditions, holding my heading perfectly. For some reason, the hair on the back of my neck stood up. My eyeballs just kind of glanced up at the through the windscreen and i see trees coming at me at 120 miles an hour i instinctively did the box canyon maneuver i pulled straight up i unloaded so i had zero g's i stomped on the left rudder and the airplane came around and now it's headed in the opposite direction which i figure is west but then i look at my standby compass my whiskey compass and i was headed south the airplane had had a precessing gyro on the heading indicator, and I had slowly been turning to the north, and I had a very, very near miss with a hill called Monkey Mountain. Every now and then, airplanes end up planting themselves on Monkey Mountain, and I would have just been another 
another loss on, on Monkey Mountain. Another statistic. But it was that what I thought was kind of useless information that saved my life. That's incredible. So you've been a learner all your life about aviation, haven't you? I guess I have. There was another time, uh, speaking of, of things that that you may or may not think are important, I really dug the physiological training and pilot training. You know, they talked about lots of different things and we had an altitude chamber and all that. I remembered that oxygen is really important for your vision and for your night vision. Oh, I'd say this is probably 35, 40 years ago. I was flying a, a T-39 from Yakota to Kadena. There's not a lot of extra fuel in a T-39 when you arrive at Kadena, but that's not a big deal because there are so many airports you could go to yeah. if Kadena is closed. Yeah. You got Fatima, you got Naha, you got all these different yeah. airports. And we're on final approach, maybe three, four mile final approach. All of a sudden, the lights at Kadena go out and the lights all over the entire island of Okinawa go out. <laughs> oh, no. I have enough fuel maybe to get to uh, to Nayuta Baru, maybe not. I hear very weakly on the radio, this is Kadena Tower on backup. If you can see the runway, you're cleared the land. But there were no lights, no lights at all, anywhere on the island. And I remembered if you are on pure oxygen, your night vision is enhanced. So it was night now. And I reached over, put on my oxygen mask, took a few deep breaths, and it was like somebody had just turned on the lights. It went from being really black night to being kind of like dusk. And I could see the runway and I landed. That was because I remembered what I had learned, oh, 30 years earlier in pilot training. Isn't that amazing? Now, I was stationed at Kadena. I can remember coming back from or taking off leaving the island because of typhoons. Right, right. And, and one night we had to do it at night. And that was one of the scariest flights I've ever been on, is trying to get out to the end of the runway, get off that base. Winds are howling. It's starting to rain. Right. And I'm thinking to myself, all right, I got a 25 knot crosswind limit. I got all this. And all of this information is coming into my head that I normally wouldn't use on a flight. One of them being, am I going to get struck by lightning? Or are you going to get struck by flying debris? Yeah, exactly. You know, what's going to hit the airplane? I was listening to an interview that they did not too long ago with Rick Tolini, the MIG killer. And he talked about intuitive expertise. That really stuck with me, you know, and I'm like, you know, I got to look into that. And he gave a great explanation for that, you know, about how you will remember something that happened to you years ago that applies to the situation you're in right here, right now, that you thought, I'm never going to use that information. Uh, that information, like you said, it's useless maybe when you're reading it, but it may be appropriate in a different time and a different situation. I think that's a great lesson learned that you have. I've been a voracious reader for that reason, because we've all had emergencies in the airplane where, well, this isn't covered in the book. You weren't expecting the lights to go out at Kadena or the entire 
island for crying out loud. That's right. That's right. Because you're because if something happens at Kidane, and of course they got two runways anyway, but Mm -hmm. if somebody was to crump a runway and the other runways having construction or something, who cares? You got so many other places you could go. It's kind of like when I was everybody thought I was a wimp whenever I would fly into San Francisco because I would always add a thousand pounds of earthquake fuel. Sooner or later, somebody's going to be on final and the earthquake hits. And all the close-in alternates are just wiped out. San Jose and Oakland and all the other places and Navy. uh, Navy Moffat Field. Moffat Field. You would normally think that if something happens to to San Fran, you could go to one of those places. But you're going to have to instead go to Sacramento or someplace even further away. So I I would always have extra fuel, which I never needed. And so it was wasted to carry fuel. You know, I carry, I spent fuel to carry fuel, but I was always prepared in case something happened. Someday that's going to happen. And I hope that everybody is prepared to go someplace where they can reach it. And see, I I think you've just said something really important about mission planning. Great mission planning is threat and error reduction. That's what Pete Fleischman talked to me about the other day. And I can remember as a lieutenant colonel, I was actually drawing on an ONC chart, an operational navigation chart. And I'd draw the whole mission out on that. And people would tell me, why are you doing that? We've got all these electronics and everything. Right. All this electronics and all these things that we have, you know, we've got displays, we've got all these kinds of stuff. I said, okay, well, what happens if you have a phase failure? When you have an electric phase failure in the airplane, what do you lose? They couldn't answer me. If I have to divert, how much, what heading do I need to take and how much fuel is it going to take? And you just captured that. And that all comes from going into these places. Here's some threats, things that might happen to you. I've done the same thing in the tanker, putting extra gas on when you're flying around the Pacific. Cause like you said, you don't know what's going to happen at a place. All right. On all of the islands, four o'clock in the afternoon, what happens? Great big, huge thunderstorms, rains like crazy during the spring, summer, and fall, right? Well, what are you going to have to do when you have to hold for a while, or you're going to have to divert to Korea? Gas gives you more options, obviously. A lot more options. Absolutely. That That's, man, that is so true, man. But, but again, George, that's something that people don't think about. Earthquakes. What did they do? Remember that, that baseball game, that famous baseball game where oh, yes. they had that massive earthquake? Absolutely. Where did all the airplanes go? What did they do? Well, I can tell you that uh, during that earthquake, everybody went to Sacramento or further away. And when they landed at Sacramento, there were no gates because all the airplanes are all the gates are occupied already. Yeah. It becomes very, very challenging for everybody who gets on the ground. Yeah, I'll bet. I'll bet. So you flew F-4s in Vietnam. Tell me, tell me some of your lessons learned from flying combat missions in Vietnam. Because you flew, obviously, during the day and at night. And you're flying during linebacker. We're, we're dropping a lot of bombs. And they're firing surface-to-air missiles like crazy. They're shooting at you guys like crazy. I'm going to tell you my most important, I think the most important lesson. Let me just back up for a second. When I was in high school, I was kind of a jock but not really a jock in other words i did a lot of a lot of sports that required 
that required strength because I was a weightlifter. I was a school weightlifting champion. And so I did wrestling. I did shot put. I did discus. I did karate. I did lots of uh, judo, not karate, judo. Uh, I did lots of things that required some strength. I didn't do any team sports. I was on a team, like a wrestling team, yeah. but I didn't do anything requiring teamwork, you know, like take one for the team and all that. When I got to the Air Force Academy, I was a gymnast on the freshman gymnastics team. And again, I was strong, so I did still rings and I was pretty good. Again, no teamwork in, in terms of the way a team works. The second year at the academy, I was cut from the gymnastics team because I wasn't on the freshman team anymore. I was competing against the big boys and they were all much better than I was. They had more they had better coordination than I did as as well as being as strong as I was. And the coach correctly cut me from the team. And I was really devastated. But at the Air Force Academy, if you're not on a varsity team, you are required to participate in intramural sports all the time, three yeah. days a week after class. So I ended up being on the soccer team and uh, flicker ball, flicker ball, volleyball, a water polo, all these different team sports. And I learned something at these team sports. If you want your team to win, you throw the ball to the player who can make the shot. And that's the, the essence of teamwork. You give the ball to the guy who can achieve success for the team. So now I'm going to tell you about my most memorable mission in the F4. And that was on May 30th, 1972. There was a, a mission over going deep into North Vietnam. We had a lot of SAMs shot at our flight and we were doing SAM breaks and that uses up a lot of fuel. And as we exit the target area, Lee calls for a fuel check. Now, the lead, the four ship lead was our brand new squadron commander named Sid Fulgham. And Sid was leading his first four ship over North Vietnam. I was number four. And my element lead, the guy who's really the most experienced pilot in the flight, was a guy named J.D. Allen. So J.D. Allen was the element lead. And as we coast out, get feet wet, I'm going to play a little. You're going to hear this. This is a recording of what transpired. Now, I was Walnut 4 as lead calls for a fuel check. Roger, everybody say this date now. It was 67. Four is one one over one one. Red Crown, this is Walnut. We need an emergency tanker. We're presently heading two one zero, squawking seven one. Okay, do you got it again? Right. Red Crown, how do you read Walnut? Lee gave Lee gave a fuel check as mm -hmm. we went feet wet. Everyone had five, roughly 5,000 pounds of fuel. I had 1,100 pounds of fuel. I had a major problem with my aircraft, uh, with the central air data computer that was scheduling fuel improperly to the engines. And I had maybe 10 minutes of fuel remaining, and the tanker was 20 minutes away. Uh, and lead was out of ideas. It was obvious to everybody that lead was out of ideas because it was his first flight. Yeah. J.D. Allen, a number three guy, got on the radio, said, lead, may I take the flight? To his great credit, Sid Fulgham let J.D. take the flight. 
Yeah. And then JD put me in the number one position for flying. And he, he gave me headings to fly. We all went over to guard. He said, uh, mayday, mayday, mayday. We need an emergency tanker off of Haiphong Harbor. Instantly, we hear on guard, we hear, this is Purple 28. I'm headed your way. Now, at that time, it was absolutely against strategic air command rules for uh, KC-135 to get anywhere near the combat zone. And here they were coming to well within SAM range of North Vietnam, and they came to meet us. In the meantime, JD was painting the tanker on his radar, giving the tanker headings to fly, giving me headings to fly, told me to start a descent. And I started a 500 foot per minute descent with a half nozzle descent, it's called. I'm preparing to bail out. My backseater, Jim Badger, is reading me the preparation for bailout checklist. And I got to tell you, uh, Mark, I sounded probably like, like an Apollo 13 astronaut. Really sounded great, but I was in what's called negative panic. I wasn't doing anything. I was, yeah. he said, tighten your lap belt. And I said, tightened, but I hadn't tightened it. Put the visor down, down, but I wasn't doing anything. I was floating above the airplane, about 20 feet above the airplane, looking down at this at this young captain sitting there and flying the airplane. It was an out-of-body experience. Finally, JD says, number four, look ahead. And I'm back in the cockpit now, and I look straight ahead. And there in front of me in the pre-contact position is a KC-135 descending at 500 feet a minute, doing a toboggan refueling with me. All I can think is, oh my God, such amazing airmanship that got everybody to this point. What if I become a total ham fist and can't refuel? I open my (laughs) refueling door and I feel clunk and the fuel starts rushing in. And I look down at my fuel counter and it's zero on the tape and zero, zero, three, zero on the counter, 300 pounds of fuel which is less than one minute of fuel remaining when I plugged in and started taking on fuel. Oh my God. And the real hero of this, of course, JD with this amazing, amazing aeronautical experience, JD got that tanker to where we were, but it was Sid Fulgham who passed the ball to the player who could make this shot. He did not let rank or his ego get in the way. He let JD take over because he knew that JD could do a better job than he could. And that saved my life that day. Man, that's church. You know that, that kind of story? Because you and I both know we've had commanders that wouldn't have done that. That said, wait a minute, I'm the commander. Oh, I, absolutely. You know, I'm commanding this fortune. But when you're playing for the Chicago Bulls, who are you going to give the ball to? Michael Jordan. That's right. Who's the yeah. Michael Jordan? Who's the Michael Jordan of your foreship? Who's the Shaquille O'Neal, the Kobe Bryant of your foreship? Yep. And you let them lead. Every commander I've ever worked for, most of the commanders I've worked for, know who their best shooters are in the squadron. And they will always, always delegate to them, going, okay, you're the expert. Go do this. That's a great story of not only teamwork. But a leadership of, I can delegate this, and we'll all survive this. (laughs) Well, Jim Badger, my backseater, and I, we always have a a joint phone call to J.D. Allen, the guy who saved our life, Uh uh, every every May 30th. (laughs) That's a great day in my life, George. That's the day I was born, May 30th. Oh, really? (laughs) 
I will remember this story on my birthday this year. You know that? <laughs> yeah. I'll remember that story. That's awesome. You're training, training a lot of guys that don't have a lot of experience that have been flying probably in the regional airlines and things like that. If I was a new hire at United, had some flying time in some of these regional jet airlines, what are some of the advice that you would give to me as a new pilot coming not only into United, but coming into the 737 as, for lack of a better term, an inexperienced pilot? At United Airlines, things are very structured. You, we, fi- we follow procedures very rigorously. And I mm-hmm. would tell the person, and I've had some people come through that didn't have even regional airline experience. It just had late plane time, for example. There are people like that. You have to have 1,500 hours to have an ATP. You have to have an ATP to get hired, but somebody could have an ATP with very with only light plane time, maybe multi-engine twin or something. Uh-huh. And I would say you need to learn your procedures very, very thoroughly. For example, we have this, what we call flows, which Boeing calls procedures. But we go around the cockpit. We look at every switch, control, and indicator, set it up to the proper position, And then we do a checklist. So you set up all the switches the way they're supposed to be before the engines are started, for example. Mm -hmm. And then you do the pre-flight or the before pushback checklist. If you do it correctly, it's a checklist, which means you're checking that you've done everything correctly. You don't move any switches. Every time the cockpit voice recorder hears a switch being moved, that proves to whoever listens to it that you didn't do your procedure correctly. You need to be able to set up everything so that the only thing that moves during the course of a checklist is your eyeballs as you're looking at the switch to see that it's in the correct position. And of course, if it's not in the correct position, you have to put it there. I try to impress upon them that it's really critical that they be able to tune, identify, monitor, look at every switch, make sure it's in the correct position, and then it's giving you the correct indication when it's in the correct position. Oh, that's great stuff. Because how many accidents have had as a cause didn't follow procedure, didn't follow checklist, those kinds of things written in them, you know? And in fact, we we all know that that right near where you are is Hill Air Force Base, and Hill Air Force Base is named after Ployer Hill, which was the B-17 accident that created the checklist. I did not know that. Well, Ployer Hill was the best pilot in the Army Air Corps in the late 30s. He was going to demonstrate for the Department of Defense. I think it was called the Department of Defense then. This new airplane that Boeing had built, which later became called the B-17. It was called something else at the time. They were doing a demonstration flight and they crashed on takeoff and he was killed. In the subsequent investigation, they said, if here's the best pilot we have. If he screws up some switches, which is what happened, then anybody can. And we need to develop some system of making sure that everything is in the correct place at the correct time. And we'll make this checklist where we'll check things off. And they created the checklist. There was never again a B-17 lost from pilot mistakes on switchology. There are a lot of B-17s lost during the war, of course. As a result of that, we have the standardized checklist now where we do things 
by the checklist, not by the seat of our pants, but by a checklist. And that's taken over the entire industry. And now, of course, they, they use checklists in all kinds of other industries, too. I did not know that, George. Of course, Hill has got a great museum up there, and, and they've got a big wall of just Ployer Hill stuff. But I'd never heard that story. That's great stuff. Checklist items. Because, you know, I remember in Strategic Air Command, man, they would hammer checklists into us like crazy, particularly when it came to the uh, emergency war order stuff, the nuclear war stuff. Absolutely. That was one of the things Curtis LeMay instituted too, is, you know, you will, <laughs> you will not only understand this checklist, but you'll do it over and over and over and over again. So it was a habit. How many pilots have gotten in trouble because they haven't followed their habit patterns? That's right. Yeah. And, you know, I hated being in strategic air command. But I have to tell you, Mark, I and I hated the B-52, big lumbering B-52. doesn't even have ailerons. It has spoilers. We would always see a B-52 take off and the nose wheel is still on the ground and the main gear is lifting off. And, yep. and we would say, well, a pig doesn't ever run with its nose in the air. You know, it was just I hated the B-52. When I was going through 730, 727 training as a new hire at United, Everything just seemed so easy to me because a Boeing is a Boeing. And a 727 <laughs> systems were very similar to B-52 systems. And I tore up the program to the extent that they asked me to stay on as an instructor because I, I did so well. And it was because of my hated time in the B-52. It turned out to be a wonderful experience. And I would go back in a heartbeat. And, and they're still flying, of course. I'd go back in a heartbeat and fly that now. Isn't that crazy? That B-52 is going to outlive us. You know, that's right. That yeah. thing's going to keep going and going. I'm real excited, though, George, to hear and see the new long range strike airplane, the B-21 Raider. It's supposed to have its first flight here pretty soon. That'll be interesting to see the comparison between, you know, here's this old 65 year old airplane and here's this brand new airplane and uh, what they're going to do with it, how they're going to do it. So. All right. Here in the last few minutes, why don't you give us advice? What advice would you give to brand new podcasters? Learn Guys everything. like me yeah. that are just starting. <laughs> Learn you know? everything you can because it's a very steep learning curve. I still end up butting my head against the wall sometimes trying to get a, a, a recording to work out correctly when I'm ed doing my editing in Adobe yeah. Audition. Coming up on 600 episodes. It's just, it's a lot of work. And the most important part is the preparation. Like everything else, preparation is key. When I have a guest, I try to find out everything I can about them. If they've written the book, I try to read or at least skim the book that they've read, uh, written so that I can have an intelligent conversation with them. And then I pre-flight all of my equipment very thoroughly. I use a Tascam a digital recorder, and then I use Zoom for the face-to-face interview because it's easier to talk to somebody when you can look them in the face. Yeah. And then I have Zoom set up to record, and that's my backup for the recording. A webpage called uh, Entrepreneur on Fire, where the guy who is a very knowledgeable podcaster, and he makes a lot of money at it, gives advice. And you can get a lot of free advice as well as buying his course. You can get a lot of free advice on how to set up a podcast, yeah. how to upload it using you know the ID ID3 uploading, getting it onto, I use a 
a program called Liberated uh, Libsyn, Liberated Syndication, I think is what yeah, it stands it's for. Yeah, it's Liberated Lib That's who I use, too. Uh, to get it uploaded so that it will play on Apple Podcasts and uh, all the other platforms. Spent a lot of time trying to learn, and I'm still learning, of course, learning how to effectively use Adobe Audition. That's the audio editing program I use, and it's part of a complete suite of programs that Adobe produces. So I have a monthly membership to the Adobe suite, which includes their video editing and all kinds of other things too, which I only use a little bit of, but mostly it's Adobe Audition that I use. But it's a really effective program, and that's what I like to yeah. use. Like I said, I back up everything. I upload everything to Dropbox after I have it launched. And uh, that way I have everything securely backed up. Oh, so that's that how somebody... you save everything. Yeah. And, huh. and when, I, when I finish my, um, when I launch an episode, once it goes live, I send a link to my podcast guests of the episode, the web page for the episode. And I also send an, an embed code for the audio so that they can share that on social media or whatever. And it's worked fairly well. I have about a thousand downloads a day. We went over a million downloads last uh, total downloads, uh, a million total downloads uh, in the middle of last year. Believe it or not. A million uh, downloads, George. Our, Congratulations. Our, Holy smokes. Well, believe it or not, you know, during COVID, when everybody was at home and nobody was working, you would think people would be listening to podcasts a lot, but it dropped off. And it occurred to me that most people listen to podcasts while they're driving to work. If they're not driving to work, they're not listening to podcasts as much. You know, you have to be ready for uh, the ups and downs of the business. Uh, as far as getting a uh, as far as getting sponsorships, I'm a total failure, Mark. Uh, that's where you, if you want to make money at podcasting, you have sponsorships. And yeah. uh, I do this for the love of the of aviation and yeah. sharing my passion. And eventually I'll get some pot, I'll get some sponsorships if if they're a sponsor I really believe in. But right now it's just my books that I talk about as my sponsor. That's great stuff, George. I'm using Audition. I'm using Libsyn. My sponsor is my book, but of course, you know, I've got the artwork too at Wallpilot. So what I've been doing is I also do the episode. I did an episode on Gail Halverson last week. I attended his funeral. Wow. His funeral is only about eight minutes from my mom down in Provo. His kids told some great stories about him when he was younger and flying. And then Duncan McNabb, the former transcom commander, was here also and talked about some of the things that his interactions with him. And it was really a lot of fun, but you know, you've flown and have been around a lot of famous people during that time period that you were flying in Vietnam. And, and I'm sure there's lots of these people have gone from flying fighter jets to, to flying for United. I, I, I can only imagine what your Rolodex looks like. Holy smokes. Well, I've had a lot of I've I've been very fortunate, Mark. To, I've interviewed so many out of the, like I said, coming up on 600 now. This uh, March 25th is National Medal of Honor Day. And my episode, it's already recorded. It's going to air on March 25th. Episode is an interview with my friend Lee Ellis, who spent five and a half years in the Hanoi Hilton. And uh, Janine Sidejohn tells 
tells Lance's story. And that's what the episode is about. Because as you know, Lance uh, is the uh, the only Air Force Academy graduate to be awarded the Medal of Honor. Very fascinating story. The guy was just amazing. I wish I had known him at the Academy. I had heard his name because he was a football jock. I heard his name. Yeah. They would mispronounce his name when he went on the field. He and Lee were best buddies in F4 training. And, uh, and uh -huh. I think they went to pilot training together. So they had a lot of stories to share. Oh, I'll bet. Yeah, like my uncle has a whole bunch of stories to share from being in, in the Hanoi Hilton. I got to go to the 25th Vietnam POW reunion. My uncle asked me to come down to Dallas to go. Wow. So he was helping put it on. He goes, I need some manpower. Will you and Val come down? And we said, sure. Somebody took a picture of me, Robbie Reisner, and his wife, Dot, watching airplanes going by. I'm sitting talking to Robbie Reisner. They all wanted to know, well, what was Desert Storm like? What's it like dropping PGMs? All these, all these different things, you know. They didn't want to talk about anything of their backgrounds and the things that happened to them. They wanted to hear all these stories from Desert Storm and all these different things. It was, it was amazing. Oh, what's his name? Johnson. He was Leo Thorson's backseater. Uh -huh. Harry Johnson. He was there and had his campaign hat with him that they would mark the, they would put the little marks of the mission marks on them like that. Uh -huh. And I remember looking at him, you know, some were black, some were red. And I said, Harry, what does the red ones mean? He goes, Oh, those were the scary ones. We would put little red marks and it was a red SA two uh, silhouette that they would put on their campaign hats. Uh -huh. and, and he could go through almost every one of those little mission marks on there. And remember he got shot down. Like he had like 97 missions. He was only three to go home. Right. And it was just amazing talking to these guys that had been flying these, particularly the weasel missions, because they were getting shot down like crazy. That was a brand new mission. And then seeing Harry wearing his hat with all of his little mission marks and the red mission marks interspersed amongst them. Uh -huh. uh, just amazing stuff. Amazing stuff. George, I'm not going to hold you up any longer, man. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on Lessons from the Cockpit podcast today, George. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure being on, and thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it. It's great to have you on. And again, all of you go out and find the Ham Fist Trilogy, where George talks about kind of your background in a little bit, you know, in a fictional kind of way, and uh, flying O2s and F4s uh, over some pretty scary places over Vietnam. Well, thank you for the plug. <laughs> You're very welcome. You're very welcome. I hope you've enjoyed this episode, episode number 17 of the Lessons from the Cockpit show. It's great to have George on. And we're going to have him on again because obviously he's got thousands of lessons learned from flying so many different types of airplanes and a number of airlines too. Special thanks once again to our sponsor for this show, the book Tanker Pilot, Lessons from the Cockpit, found in all four formats on Amazon, hardback, softback, Kindle, and Audible versions. The Kindle and Audible versions both come with a extra file that has a 32 pictures that me and a couple of other folks took that I've included in the book. On next week's show, you're gonna hear from a gal who flew C-27 Spartans flying all over South America with special forces in the back 
C-5s, but she also opened two airfields preparing for the war in Afghanistan. And it's a fascinating story to hear how she does an airfield survey and gets a place ready for continuous operations of C-5s, C-17s, C-130s, international cargo airplanes to come into an airport because you got to figure out, A, can the runway take it? And how many airplanes can we get on the ground? Where are we going to put all the cargo? And how are we going to move it from there? This and previous episodes of my podcast can be found on my webpage, marcasera.com. And you just go to the blog pull-down box and they're all right there. Thanks again for joining us for the Lessons from the Cockpit Show. And we'll talk to you again next week. Have a great week.